Blog Talk Radio. There's some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird pick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. www.squatchcoffee.com and uh, go there and you can check out our our videos. Uh, we got some from oh, let's see what are some good ones. Todd and Diane niece uh, have done a few um, and they're there's uh, they're really good. Uh, Kip Morrill has done a couple of videos for Sasquatch Coffee and then uh, if uh, you don't mind a little bit of raw language. Uh, you check out uh, Michael Merchant's video. Um, uh-huh. it's, uh, it's typical Michael Merchant. And there's one, I just finally got a watch in the world with uh, a special uh, appearance by you know, our friend the Yeti. So, and uh, uh, I, I can't remember who did that video, but it was a, it, it was a good one, one of my favorites. So. Yeah. Not really sure, but what a stud! What a stud! What an incredible video! <laughs> hmm. You seem to have some inside knowledge. So I'm, so I may have a always, little something to do with that video. <laughs> but uh, with me, as always, is my good friend and consummate Bigfoot researcher, Mr. Shane Corson. Shane, how are you? Uh, doing well, Gunner. As always, uh, I don't seem to have too many bad days, and when they're bad. They're still better than uh, uh, you know a lot of what other people are going through. So I can't complain and uh, enjoying the weather as well. We still got some sun going on here in Oregon, at least for a couple more days. Expecting rain, I think midweek. So uh, yeah, doing well. Yeah, that it was. Uh, we went up to uh, 
we went down to Eugene yesterday, and it was like 91 degrees. So played a little putt putt golf, and uh, and it was a good time. So, but we there's a little bit of excitement. A couple of our our team members were up in our research area last night, and and uh, had some activity around camp, some different kinds of unusual audio and stuff, including a, it sounds like a, a loud uh, wood knock, and I'll put that in quotations because since we did not see something being hit against a tree. But or what did it, right? Yeah, so. But, but this morning, uh, one of our uh, team members uh, is uh, had a sighting, caught sight of something bipedal, um, wa- watching um, them and... Uh, uh, when a couple of the other members were out of camp, so um, yeah, that's interesting. The the you know we're still the jury's still out, but she, she was pretty sure that uh, it. Uh, you know, it's funny because it, it it's hard for people sometimes to say, you know, definitively that was was a bigfoot. Um, right. It, it falls into the interesting, you know, what else could it have been kind of category. Yeah. So yeah. and uh yeah, I, I was up exciting. there I went up there uh, up up in that area and, and solo camped uh Friday and it was a pretty pretty quiet night, had a, a few oddities, um early morning, um some some few knocks or uh, possible knocks and and a couple of possible uh howls in there. Definitely some coyote activity and definitely some barn owl activity barn owl activity that I got all recorded. But it overall was a pretty quiet night. And then to have these other team members go up Saturday night and camp in just a slightly different area, an area that Larry and I had kind of discovered and really liked. And uh, for them to go out there and and have uh, some possible activity and a possible sighting is just phenomenal, extraordinary. And also very cool because uh, it's an area that makes a lot of sense to me that we've had activity before, but it's an area that uh, makes a lot of sense as a travel corridor, a place to get to and fro, um, especially if you're a Sasquatch. It makes a lot of sense. So I can't wait to delve into and hear more about what they experienced and saw and, and to get up there and, and uh, do some uh, surveying myself. Yeah, that is an area that that uh, we've had other stuff come out of, uh, audio events, you know, some knocks and, and howls and weird stuff. All right. So and we, 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 as we talk about it, we, we don't think that they, you know, they have one area that they stay in all the time. It wouldn't make sense, you know, that they that they move from place to place, kind of. And, and uh, this this is one of those areas where it uh, seems like that we've had ideas that that they've come out of that area, you know, from that direction, uh, and came and checked us out when we've been in our base camp, so. Yeah, and, and you know, cool. the, the the areas, you know, um, you got a lot of water sources uh, really close by. You have some clear cuts. There's a lot of deer and elk in these areas. Uh, we know there's definitely some bear in this area, uh, and um, just the, the area in general uh, makes sense, uh, not, to, not for something, say, like a Sasquatch to hunker down in, but to visit definitely uh, for the, the natural resources. 
And, uh, you know, this area has a history of sightings, and, and, you know, we got tons of um, pretty compelling and very interesting recordings and found some interesting impressions as well. So, I mean, but that area there, though, it just it just really screams to me uh, an area that we really need to focus on. Um, and I'm just glad that they made it out there over the weekend and and possibly had some great activity. And that's exciting to me. Yeah, it's cool. And then, of course, I, I'm always wanting, it always, you have something happen significant and, and uh, you just makes you want to get back out on the field as fast as, as possible. So, yeah, yeah, very <laughs> cool. Yesterday. And yeah, <laughs> like, uh, speaking of the Tillamook Forest Research Group, we will be uh, presenting at uh, Guy Edwards' event this month, uh, Hop Squatch, and I believe that is coming up on the last Sunday of the month, which is the twenty seventh of September. So, if you're in the Portland area, um, come on by and have a beer, and, and uh, our group will be uh, sharing some of our research and audio stuff, and, and uh, it should be fun. So, um, Yes, can't wait. It's going to be a blast. It should be good times. So uh, you got anything else before we get into our guest today? No, no. Uh, let, let's, uh, let's invite Chuck on. Uh, he's a... Uh, I mean, I have a lot of respect for uh, his is uh, very serious when out in the field and, and very serious in person when it comes to this subject uh, and just uh, honest and all around great guy. Guy, like I said, I got a lot of respect for and and, and reach out to him to join us because uh, I think he just he's really smart. He's dedicated and has a lot of experience uh, in, in in the woods and uh, you know he's had some some extraordinary stuff happened to him not a sighting per se but uh you know he's recently become uh in the last year you know a limit project member so uh and a great absolutely a fantastic uh member to have aboard so no let's bring let's bring chuck on all right well give a little bit of uh oh, excuse me we'll uh go ahead and do that yeah all right we'll do Hi, Chuck. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. So tell us a little bit about about yourself and how you got into to uh, Bigfooting. Sure. Hey, you know, before I do that, though, I just want to say yeah. I, I appreciate being on the show. I've always listened to your show. It's a great show, and uh, it's a huge honor to be part of the show. So you guys have a good thing going, and I enjoy listening to you guys. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's an honor having you on the show, Chuck. Uh, you know, I I think uh, you got a lot to contribute, and uh, I, you know, I think you're a fantastic researcher overall and just in general, just a really all around solid guy. So it's just a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. So thank you for those kind words. All right, well, I appreciate your words also. How I kind of got into the Bigfoot thing, you know, as a kid, I was always fascinated of the In Search of programs, the A&E programs that would come out with, um, you know, things about Bigfoot, showing the old Patterson-Gimlin film, and I was always fascinated. And my dad uh, was a hunter, and that guy would go hunting in the fall every weekend and try and get us kids to come out with him, me and my brother. And my brother took to the hunting part, and me not so much because I um, was into um, 
junior high and high school sports growing up. And so when I went hunting with my dad, I just went along kind of for the ride. But while I was out there, I always in the back of my mind had um, the readiness of catching a glimpse of seeing a Bigfoot. And, of course, I never did growing up, but that's what kept me enthused when I did go hunting with my dad. He'd have me come out, and I thought, hey, you know what, this might be an opportunity to see something. And, you know, so I always had it in the back of my mind and always read the books when I was younger and um, got busy. You know, life happened. High school football kind of took over, and um, that's what I was doing in the weekends in the fall. And then after high school, um, I wasn't cut out for college, so I immediately got into the construction trade and uh, concrete construction specifically and, and have been self-employed for the last 27 years. And uh, my parents own this property um, just outside of Ashford, Washington. And I decided to invite some of my employees and their families to come up and uh, spend the weekend on, on this property. And so one weekend we did that, and it was probably in the spring, so it wasn't um, too cold and not too warm. And we decided to go for a night hike, um, actually probably road walking. Actually, we'd walk behind the gates that were there, um, go along the Nisqually River, and we're kind of talking, being loud. And, um, you know, during this time, I wasn't into researching at all. I, I had never gone into the woods to look for Bigfoot or listen for Bigfoot or nothing. I was just out enjoying this walk with my employees and their families. And it was dark. This was probably, you know, about 11, 15, 11, 20 at night. And um, the rivers kind of um, lit up kind of in the background through the trees. You can just see the, 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 you know, the glistening of the river through some of the trees. And one of my employee's wife says, hey, who's that standing in the road? I, I can't remember if she said, who's that or what's that? It sounded real close. I couldn't, couldn't remember. And just when I turned my head to the right to um, see what she was talking about, I just made out this large silhouette, vertical, dark um, image, step off the road and into the trees, and continue walking through the trees. And this road hadn't been driven on for many, many years. It was behind a gate, and some of those old logging roads will get the maple vines and some willows that will start kind of creeping in on the edges and narrow up the road a little bit and kind of force you to walk down the middle. And, and it was standing off to one side on the river side. And uh, everyone you got, got kind of freaked out because it definitely did not look like an elk. It, look, it looked like a large person was standing there and just letting us walk up on it, and when we all stopped and said something about it and our direction went right to it, it stepped off that road, and we could see it move through the trees and going towards the river. And uh, immediately the wives all wanted to turn around and go back. Of course, so did us dudes because we weren't real sure what it was. <laughs> and We went back to our you know, little camp there and talked about it all night, and um, I couldn't stop thinking about that moment, I couldn't stop thinking about how close we were to perhaps, you know, that was a Bigfoot. Um, sometimes when elk look at you head on, they can look vertical in the dark. Um, even in a therm, if you look at, a, at an elk and he's far enough away and he's looking head on, you know, they just have that vertical um, image. But when they turn, you can see that they're definitely horizontal. But when uh, this creature turned and walked away towards the river off that road, 
it was still a vertical dark image that was moving away from us and like i say it, it was dark enough that i could see it was upright but i couldn't you know i couldn't see feet and i couldn't see its face and i couldn't see hands and um it was probably a good 10 yards maybe 15 yards in front of us um and often we when we sat around the fire that night talking about it you know the gals were saying i wonder if it was going to let us walk right up to it if we were going to walk right by that thing standing there and, and what was it doing watching us and you know they were kind of you know freaking themselves out the rest of that evening and um yeah kind of from that point on i started um you know paying more attention when i'm in the woods and um you know started um doing a little more serious reading about the subject instead of just casual reading and keeping track of different groups on uh, the Internet. And then when my business got to where I could enjoy weekend time, then I decided to go out and start, you know, actively doing some serious research. And um, I had bought a uh, 91 GMC Jimmy. Um, It's like a blazer in uh, 2013. Um, And I asked my wife, hey, do you want to go out and just kind of see how the truck does? And this was, again, out in Ashford. It's the very same area within, you know, probably a quarter mile of that um, occurrence we had in 1998. And um, I had a little hand recorder with me in the truck. I wasn't setting up to do any, um, you know, active listening or listen for audio or nothing like that, but I had it with me. And we got out of our truck and um, sat in a couple lawn chairs. And this was, you know, again, probably just before midnight. It was a nice evening, clear sky. You can see the stars were so perfect. Um, no mosquitoes, and so we, we we could enjoy being outside. And uh, as we're sitting there, kind of relaxing, we're talking to ourselves in low tone voice. We hear, you know, within within a quarter mile, within 250 yards of us, a distinct Ohio type call, loud moan. Um, I stood up out of my chair and I told my wife, "Did you hear? Did you hear that? That was awesome." She goes, we have your recorder, why don't you use it? So I went to my truck and I grabbed it, and I'm turning it on, and I mentioned to her, well, you know, probably like a one in a million chance it's going to howl again, you know, something like that you don't get to hear all the time. And within about 15, 20 minutes after the first howl, it howled again. This time I had my recorder on and was able to recall, um, record the Ohio-type howl out there in Ashford. But what was what was interesting about that was after that second howl, you could hear a couple other animals respond in this really kind of weird whining type um, vocal. You know, coyotes sound really weird, and wolves can sound weird. You know, with certain calls they make, but these were, uh, you know, these were different. I had never heard anything like that at all, and I caught those on my recorder also. Now, this recorder was just a little handheld recorder. It didn't have a parabolic dish or nothing held up to it, and I'm holding it in my hands, and I'm kind of shifting it in my hand, and, of course, with the microphones on that handheld device and you've got the device in your hand, every little movement you make is going to be loud, so the recording isn't the best. So I kind of just hung on to that uh, recording and, you know, was telling my wife, you know, I, I I think they live out here. I think these Bigfoots come out of these hills and they actually roam around down here. And so I took that that uh, vehicle that I bought, you know, that was going to be my little um, research vehicle, uh-huh. and spent weekends going into that same area 
So what I would do is I'd go in there and check it out all all weekend and sit and listen at night and um, started finding tree breaks because now I would venture into the woods. I would walk elk trails and kind of zigzag, you know, back and forth from the river to this other um, logging road that kind of parallels it. And I would notice um, impressions and um, would, you know, question myself, man, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Am I seeing exactly, you know, what Bigfoots are doing or am I seeing some other anomaly in the woods? And, uh, you know, a few, a couple months go by and I notice another vehicle kind of goes in and out about the same time I do. And uh, I happened to, you know, stop the guy who was driving it. And that's how I hooked up with Ben Freed from Bigfoot Ops. And Ben had been going out there and researching this area for the last few years himself prior to 2013. He'd been going out there longer than I have doing mm-hmm. active research. And I just asked him, hey, what are you doing? Are you out here, you know, looking for Sasquatch? And he just smiled, and he goes, yes, I am. You know, have, you, have you seen any? You know, and, and I said, you know, I've heard some things, and we kind of compared notes and what we saw. And uh, it was really neat that the things that I was seeing and trying to interpret as Sasquatch sign, he also had been seeing the same things in different areas and came to the same conclusion I was coming to, that there were a couple individuals that visited this area at least on a weekly basis with the knocks and with the howls, and so you know we kind of teamed up together, and um, we've each purchased quite a bit of equipment on our own that we own, but we use them together when we go out and do uh, research. And you know, since that point forward, we've been uh, collecting quite a bit of audio and um, numerous knocks. We've both cast tracks, and uh, Ben actually had a sighting here about three weekends ago in our research area. I uh, wasn't able to get it on video and didn't uh, record it on therm, um, but it was right in this you know area that we feel they pass through um, just before dark. They come off this hillside and go into a foraging area, which is about a seven-square-mile flatland area just before you get to the river, and it's full of wetland plants. It's full of um, huckleberries, which, of course, are all gone now for the time of year, but there's just a lot of habitat in that area. And, you know, and, and with our research, mm-hmm. I, I kind of, that's how I met uh, Derek Randalls and other members of the Olympic Project. And they happened to be out here in Puyallup one weekend presenting, and um, Derek was advertising expeditions out there at uh, your guys' research facility in the Olympics, and I decided to go, you know, and when I went, I just discovered a whole new world of researchers who um, collaborated and bounced ideas off of each other and shared things with with each other. And um, I started sending all of my recordings to Dave Ellis and ask him, you know, what do you think? Is, it, is this what I think it is? And you know, and, and of course, Dave's very honest, and uh, he has told me when I've recorded owls, he has told me when I've recorded coyotes, uh, but he's also told me when I've recorded what might be Sasquatches howling and that um, August 30th um, audio that I was referring to was one that he said was a perfect um, signature in the spectrogram for a, um, a Bigfoot, and that the response howls, the high-pitched kind of whinings, he felt there were at least two individuals that were responding back because he could see the signatures of two individuals on a spectrogram. So, so mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty exciting. So yeah, things like that keep you going, keep you wanting to uh, go back in the woods and uh, be prepared 
for the next encounter. I was listening to you guys while I was on hold about your possible um, sighting this weekend. And man, I always try to have cameras rolling and it always seems the batteries are dead or you have it in the wrong position or something happens, you know, that you don't catch what you want to catch. And I try to practice on other wildlife, bears and elk. You know, I try to um, do the best I can when I come across one on the road. I have a dash cam and I try to have it always going and try to catch images of wildlife just to practice and all my buddies say, well, man, how come you just can't pull out your camera and, you know, take a picture out your window of these things? And when you actually try to practice taking a picture of an elk or coyote or something on the road and you get your phone or you get your camera out, by the time you power on, you, by the time you focus, those things are long gone. You know, it's it, it's a lot harder to do than people think. Absolutely. Yeah, I took some pictures uh, of a cross-country meet this, this weekend and and – you know, more of them come out fuzzy than than clear. I mean, you oh, yeah. It's not that. Yeah. So you're you've been out in this. So you've went to the same area. Um, I mean, you you got your your you had the first encounter in what 2000 or 1999? Is that right? Yeah, 1998. Just a casual walk, you know, at night with my employees right. and our friends. That, that's when we saw that. You know, whatever it was on the road, the vertical upright, either a big dude or a big foot. You know, it was it was <laughs> something vertical as it moved away. That was in 1998. And, and then, then this, and so, then and then in 2013, you recorded um, the the howls that that uh, sounded a lot like the. I've heard them, and they do sound a lot like uh, the Ohio scream. Shane, don't you have those uh, handy that we could listen to? Um, I'll go ahead and play the uh, August 30th. Uh, give me one second here. Yeah, you got to listen close. The re- you know the quality is not the best. was the August 30th and uh, you know they they sound very similar to the uh uh Ohio calls. Yeah, they do, you know, and um like I said, I sat on them for, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with them, who to share them with or anything and then I kept, you know, came across Derek Randall's and the rest of you guys at the Olympic project and Dave Ellis gave it a listen and you know showed me on the spectrograph, you know, you can visually see 
the recorded, you know, the recordings and individual signatures and the, you know, that reply call. Well, first off, that Ohio howl that you hear, that's the second call. I just happened to turn on my recorder before that next call. I mean, I turned it on just seconds later, you know, it howled again. But those response howls, those kind of uh, crying sounds, I thought that was yeah. one, one individual doing that. But on the uh, spectrograph, you can clearly see that those are two individuals, one's ascending its uh, cry, and at the same time, another's descending. And that's what makes it so eerie sounding. Um, and the the Ohio howl had, it had to have been about, you know, now that I've had experience in the woods and hearing and can, and can judge distances, it had to have been within 200 yards of where I was sitting. But those reply mm-hmm. calls that were closer, those had to have been inside of 100 yards. They were a lot wow. closer to us. So my wife and I were looking at each other when the Ohio howl type call was going off. And we're like, wow, you know. And then we heard those reply, and um, we're like, whoa, those are a lot closer than the other call. Yeah. Now, for a reference, I'm going to go ahead and play the Ohio call just because uh, I have it handy, and I'm going to play that just as a reference uh, so okay. people can kind of uh, hear uh, the similarities. sound i mean they sound pretty pretty similar yeah i i think the one that i captured is i can't remember how many seconds longer dave ellis told me it was than you know the um classic ohio how that you just played um because the one you played i believe is looped um, yeah it was looped yeah yep yeah it was looped uh but uh the 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 you know i haven't listening you know blog talk unfortunately doesn't share the best uh, sounds uh, so uh you know we just have to go off what what, what we can do and, and right. hopefully the audience can hear it and whatnot but uh there, there's a lot of similarities there and uh chuck if you don't mind maybe i'll post uh the link that you share with me in the group because it, it sounds a lot better um off of blog talk to be honest with you but sure uh, yep. okay appreciate that but uh, yeah a lot of similarities there and um uh in in the fact that uh, you know you got to record it. It's fantastic. You know that's it's hard to do. And I find the you recorded that in August. I think the Ohio sounds. I know they were recorded in autumn. Uh, I'm thinking September. But a lot of these these type recordings that are uh, possibly Sasquatch related are recorded this time of year. You know, this August September. You know, uh, do you have any opinions on that, or or why? You know, if it is Sasquatch. Why August or September these recordings get picked up? Yeah, you know, we've, you know, since that has happened, um, and my wife wants to wring my neck, but I have purchased <laughs> four parabolic dishes, recording, you know, tripods, put them together. Uh, me and Ben have done, and Ben has also bought, he has three or four of his own. I went and bought one of those uh, 
Wildtronics parabolic dish. They are very, very expensive. Dave, you know, mm-hmm. um, suggested I get one of those. And, you know, we set those up every weekend, and we do special projects where we'll, we'll set them up and let them record every night for a week. And we'll drive out there every night, and we'll replace batteries and SD cards and review. Since that 2013, I have never heard anything like that. And, of course, yeah. you just got to be at the right place at the right time. But, you know, I, I think those Ohio howls, just from my reading and, um, you know, bouncing things off other people, I, I think the, those, it's a male that comes in an area just only so often, you know, to let the females know uh-huh. he's there. And, I mean, on the other side of the mountain where, we, where we're not researching, he, you know, he could be howling over there at a different time of year, you know, we're just not there to record it. But, yeah, I definitely think males move through seasonally we've only um cast and photographed one um 18 inch track in our area um and we have not seen anything like that since and this has been about a year and a half we see smaller ones we see in between you know 12 and 14 um tracks mm-hmm. but uh and we've casted a couple um if you guys ever have uh, been on your show I'll let him share some of those things because he's got some great casts and yeah. You know, and so the the smaller ones are quite frequent, but you know we haven't haven't seen you know any sign of the of, the, of a big male coming through there yet. Yeah, it's just odd though that the, these you know these recordings you know they are rare. I mean, uh, the Ohio call was recorded uh, by Matt Moneymaker back in '94. Mm-hmm. You know, and and there's a few others out there. I think Jim Sherman out of Michigan, he's got uh, something similar. It's a few of them, but they're just that rare. And, and it just seems to be at a certain time of year, certain time of month. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that, like you said, you know, that these are like, you know, some sort of male. You just have to be in the right place at the right time to record this sort of stuff. And it's a male moving through and letting the ladies know he's around or, or something of that nature, nature. It makes a lot of sense to me. Right. Um, no, and, and that's how orangutans... Male orangutans will just sit up in a tree, and when he, you know, feels like consorting with females, he will howl, and then females come find him. You know, male orangutans are lazy. They sit and eat, and they just sit in one <laughs> spot, and they let the females know where they're at. And, of course, you know, um, silverback gorillas, they stay with their family groups and move. So, you know, I think the Sasquatch is probably closer to the male orangutan where he is solitude. He He, he forges by himself. He lives by himself, and when he feels like company, he just calls for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned orangutans, you know, because uh, Cindy Cadell, another Lint Project member and a Pro member and uh, uh, anthropologist, we've, we've been discussing orangutans. You know, they're, they're two – it's a type of primate that interests us, uh, you know, a lot. You know, anytime I head to the zoo – um, one of my first stops and probably longest stops is always around the orangutans. I just I don't know why I'm drawn to them, but there's something about them uh, that draws me in. But the the, the similarity similarities possibly in some of the behavior um, that's documented with Sasquatch it's it's uncanny at times, or you know, or at least interesting. And so oh, I agree. You yeah, know, I, I've, yeah. in the zoos I've looked into the eyes of chimpanzees, gorillas, and my dogs, and <laughs> what you see in their eyes. It's kind of the same. It's instinct, and, you know, they're kind of, you know, the next move's based on a response. But, but when you look at orangutans, I mean, they're, yeah. they're, the wheels are turning. 
in their head when you look in their eyes. You know, I mean, you can see there's there's thinking going on. And my daughter was trying to get pictures of an orangutan at the zoo. And um, as soon as my daughter, the you know, orangutan is looking at my daughter, and as soon as my daughter pulls up a camera, it covers his head. I mean, simultaneously, <laughs> camera comes up, he covers his head. And it's just, they know what's coming. They know what you're after. It's just, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, I, you know, some people claim that chimpanzees are, are the smartest of the great apes, but, man, those orangutans are, you know, they may be slow and lazy, but, man, they are thinkers. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, there's some, just something fascinating about watching them, uh, and and uh, they just seem, you know, for me personally, they just seem very intelligent, uh, almost like the old man of the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh kind of just taking back and watching everything and taking it all in and, and uh, you know, you know chimpanzees, you know, they'll lay there for a while, but when they're up and about, they're up and getting, moving around, doing this and that. And, and they don't always pay attention to you, but orangutans, you know, they always seem to be kind of watching you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Oh, fascinating stuff. Um, but back back to the, the, do you have a specific or specific months that you like to head out uh, and do research? Do you find more activity in certain months, possibly, or um, are you just across the board? Um, yeah, you know, I, I try to get out consistently. I try, I try to get out twice a month minimum every month, um, you know, because a, a lot of research, depending on the researcher, a lot of research data is based on when they're there. And so, you know, if you never go out in November and if you never go out in December um, and then you you keep track of your data like I do, then you have, you know, zeros for those months. Um, and so I just, you know, decided, you know, to be consistent, to really know what's happening out there, you got to be out there every month. And same thing with moon phases. Um, for a while, I was getting into the habit of only going out in the dark moon phase because you're almost guaranteed knocks of some sort during the night. On one of my recorders, you know, you stretch all your recorders out, you can cover a lot of ground. But then, I don't know what's going on in the full moon nights, you know, and, and it kind of skews your data. So I, I try to get out as many moon phases as I can, many weekends as I can, every month so I could have consistent, you know, data so I can see what's actually going on. So it, it sounds yeah. like you are you're recording um, what, you know, what the conditions are and, and uh, are you – are you? Uh, what kind of information do you uh, record when about about uh, the conditions and, and stuff when you go out and do sure. research? Well, I, I learned from Tom Baker. You know, one of my um, I think my second expedition. I took my son with. Um, he thought it was just a blast hanging out with you guys. Um, <laughs> Dr. Meldrum was there, and Tom Baker gave a presentation on recording data and um, the type of data that's recorded. And my son just happened to, in college, um, be taking a course with statistics using Excel. And so I was keeping track of all of my stuff in a, in a diary, you know, um, moon phase and the time and the weather. Was it clear? Was it cloudy? And so my son goes, why don't you just put that on a, spread chart, on a spreadsheet and then let me know when you have all your data. Well, I went through and made a spreadsheet of the date and the time, the moon phase, temperature, weather conditions, the type of howl, um, who was with me, what were we doing while we heard the noise, and if we were, if it was unattended, you know, my, my parabolic's out in the middle of nowhere, 
and it recorded something with no one around. We made you know note of that, and then my son was able to um, show me how to quantify the data and hyperlink all of my audio. So you can just click on what I'm saying it is, and it plays it for you. My son just kind of took over for me. So being able to um, organize your data, then I could even keep track of even more stuff, and I'm trying to learn to record the type of vegetation, the mushrooms and the berries and those kinds of things that are in those types of area and, and see if there's, you know, when the berries, which are now not blooming down low anymore, they're, they're all up above 3,000 feet, does that mean there's a decrease in um, audio or knocks or howls and so forth? So trying to keep track of trends. I know everyone's looking for that golden thread of being able to predict what's going on. Um, and so hopefully, you know, myself or others, you know, are, are going to find that and just, you know, raises your odds of being at the right place at the right time. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically, you're putting together patterns. That's, 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 you know, with the Olympic project, uh, specifically, that's what we're trying to do is patterns, uh, trying to figure out, uh, where, you know, Sasquatch could possibly in what time of year and in, in what type of environment and the whole nine, elevation, the whole nine. And uh, that's, I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. And it's phenomenal because you hear time and time again, no one's doing anything scientific or really doing uh, doing things the right way. And this, this is exactly what is needed. Uh, and, and people get frustrated because they want stuff here and now. They want proof. They want pictures and all this type of work is so tedious and time-consuming and expensive uh, because we all have day jobs and we all do, you know, have families and the whole nine. But to compile data that way, you know, like Tom Baker says, you know, compiling data, you know, it's so important. And after you do it for a long time, you start to develop patterns. Uh, and uh, I appreciate, Chuck, that you're, you're doing this uh, in, in the area that you're in because, you know, uh, with some of the stuff that you've encountered in Ashford and whatnot in other areas, it's uh, I know it's all being compiled together. And uh, maybe right now you're not seeing patterns or whatnot, but down the road there's a great chance you're going to get a better, bigger picture of what's going on. I mean, have you seen uh, with all the data you've collected so far uh, in working with Ben and the Lynn Project and some of these other groups and, and whatnot and individuals, have you, have, have you start, started to develop any sort of patterns or anything? Well, where, where I see the, um, the the highest amount of activity so far for us is in the darker moon phases. Now we've had we we have recorded knocks and uh, howls in full moon and some of the bright, but but right now we have over sixty five percent of our activity is in the three darkest moon phases, and of that activity. It has always a majority, not all, but a majority happen two hours after sundown. So in the you know summer, that's going to be like 10, 11 o'clock, and in the winter, that's 6 to 7 o'clock. So it's, you know, we're finding it's not a, a, a set time. It's hours after sunset is when we're seeing, you know, movement. And um, we are seeing no knocking, no howls two or three hours before sunrise, at least in the areas that, you know, we're, we're keeping track and we're doing, you know, audio surveillance. And so those kind of patterns, you know, we're definitely seeing. Um, and just like I say, hopefully 
you know, we try to be there at the right time. But to keep that true, you still have to be listening, you know, well before and well after. So fortunately, my recorders will give me up to 14 hours of recording time, and I can get about 16 hours of batteries in my in my parabolic uh, microphones. And so I set them up, you know, to record two or three hours before sundown, and then they'll record into mid-morning just to capture, you know, a bigger uh, pool of, it, of time of when you're hearing things and not hearing things. So, I mean, usually when I start reviewing and I, and I start seeing a lot of spikes just before dawn, that's when your birds are coming out and making noise. And, right. you know, it, it seems to, um, well, I never hear knocks during that, that time. It's always been a couple yeah couple hours for sun so so we're seeing definitely those kind of patterns you know the one time we're not in the woods you know and i've been real skeptical to just try to 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 get better data is when it's raining and the hard part about when it's raining is that's all you hear on your parabolic is the rain um you know and i'm trying to use ghillie material or something over my parabolic to kind of muffle the rain sound but then you know the more your electronics get wet the less life you have in them, and you'll have to replace them. So my yeah, data has that skew in it, rain. I right. It, it is one of the most difficult times to record, and especially up here in the Pacific Northwest where we get so much rain, and there could possibly be quite a chunk of activity in those times, but you hear it's like a war zone, you know, when you hear the rain coming down hitting your parabolic or your recorder. Exactly. It, you know, and then to, to, to pick up anything during those times is really hard, and it's one of those ongoing things where uh, practice makes perfect and you're trying to find the best solution to get good recordings or possible recordings no matter what they are during those times but uh you know it, it is also very important you made a good point though to re- you know even if you record nothing of significance that's important uh, it's you know it's it's just as important as recording something of significance because especially over a extended period of time because then you really get a better picture of really what's going on you know i mean uh, it's kind of like putting a trail cam out there. If you're a hunter, putting a trail cam out and, and trying to see where the deer and elk are, uh, you know, uh, and, and, okay, well, they're not here right now or they're here, you know. It's the same thing with audio. You know, you're trying to figure out, um, you know, you're, you you got your target and you're trying to figure out, well, you know, when are they here and why are they here in the whole nine? And the audio is just so similar when recording, you know, and, but it's very important. I, I fully believe that it's very important to, uh, you know, have your audio going, as, you know, in these areas and being out in these areas uh, year-round because you just get a better picture of what's going on, not just when things are, you know, going on, but when things are not going on. Exactly. I heard an interview with Rick Nolan. I think maybe Brian Brown was doing this interview, um, and Rick Knoll said, Recording no data is still data. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you've seen no footprints and recording that, if you've seen no tree breaks, you got no audio or nothing, that's still data, and you keep track of that for the weekend you were there, the moon phase you were there. And, and you know, that got me to start really uh, building my data file because before I'd, I'd only write down when I would hear something. If I heard a <laughs> knock or heard a howl, I would, I would write that down. But there was the many weekends I was out there hearing nothing, and so then I would just close my fuel journal up and you know, drive home, and that'd be the end of it. But now, you know, I try to still record all the same stuff, and I heard nothing. I noticed no tracks. I noticed no new tree breaks in this area. 
um, you start keeping track of those things and you get a much better picture and you get to know your woods better you know just just like the sasquatch knows their woods impeccably you know and uh, that's what i hope to, to notice my woods a little bit more so when you walk down an elk trail or something and you see a branch out of place or a tree missing you know knocked over or new windfall you know you start noticing that stuff mm-hmm. chuck have you noticed any any similarities with say um the 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 elk migration or deer migration or movements uh in correlation to possible sasquatch uh you know um being in an area at a certain time do do some of your uh your game play a role in all this you know besides you know we're, we were talking about you know, the elevation, you know, berries and, and whatnot that's out there, um, you know, going, you know, that they're, you know, start out lower and then move higher as far as growing and whatnot. But have you noticed any correlation with uh, the fauna out there? Um, no, I, I've been able to now have my game cameras, um, and I've got 12 of them, and I try to keep them out year-round, and I'll move them. About every four months, I'll try to move them um, to different trees or different parts of game trails um, but the elk that are in our area cross back and forth from the Nisqually so often that um, you know sometimes they are not in our research area for up to two weeks you know there'll be no elk sign no elk droppings I'll see nothing on my on my cameras and then all of a sudden boom on my cameras I'll, I'll have 400 images of elk coming through and on so so I don't notice any correlation with our knocks in our house to with mm-hmm. the elk movements. But what I am noticing is I, I do know where the elk cross going north over the Nisqually, and I also know where they come back over there in two different spots. So I'm starting to kind of look at those areas a little closer to see if maybe squatches are following them. You know, this, this time of year with the drought, anybody could walk across the Nisqually. I mean, it is down so much, and so I don't know if Bigfoot does that too. If they'll cross that river and go into a new boundary and and follow, I haven't been able to you know put those two together. What I was hoping to do this year because they added a new bridge access into our area, so I imagine there's going to be more hunters. But um, and Ben was out there this last weekend. But our thought was, you know, when Bigfoot's hear that gunshot go off. And people do a lot of shooting in our research area. It doesn't seem to scare off anything. You know, right. there's still bear and there's still cougar and there's still howls and there's still things happening. They just kind of get, you know, used to it. But if a hunter has had a kill site and they are, you know, gutting their animal and leaving stuff to kind of, you know, try and go check those areas. And, you know, I, I don't know how a hunter would feel if we ask him, hey, do you got any guts laying out there in the woods without to go <laughs> check it out? But that's something... <laughs> That's something we've tried to um, think about is, man, if there's a, a deer and elk kill over there, you know, some predator's going to be smelling that and, you know, going for it. So um, that's about the only thing we're trying to, you know, link and use the other fauna, too, is, is when they've been killed, if there's kill sites that are being visited by something else and hopefully finding tracker sign there. Right, right. Yeah, I'm always fascinated with what the ungulates are doing in in the areas that I research, including the Olympics, trying to figure out exactly you know their travel patterns, where they're at uh, during certain times of year and whatnot, and and, and uh, 
you know, see if, if Sasquatch is, is kind of taking a similar path or maybe following them or hunting them. Uh, I always find uh, in different areas uh, I'd like to talk to people and see what they're they're encountering as far as, the, the you know, with the ungulates and, and deer and elk and all that, you know, uh, what are they doing and then and, and see if uh, Sasquatch is, you know, with the encounters and reports or recordings, you know, if, if they're in the area possibly. So it's... Uh, very, it's very fascinating stuff, and all that adds up to data uh, in right. the end. Yep. Yeah. You know, my brother-in-law and I are taking him out with me, checking cameras, and you know, he's kind of skeptical um, about the Bigfoot thing. And um, he has shown me, you know, what uh, bears like to eat, and uh, he, you know, because he hunts, he knows a little bit more about the vegetation than I do. So I started buying books and uh, nice color illustrated books of edible plants in the Pacific Northwest and get to know those plants and recognize those plants in the field. And uh, just in this last year, I've changed kind of where I put my game cameras at times of the year, and I now consistently get bears on my game cameras, whereas before, I never I never saw a bear. I would never find tracks and never, you know, just assume they're there because of the big area, but I never got mm-hmm. um, pictures and video of them. And, and now I put my cameras where vegetation is readily available, and that includes mushrooms and berries. And um, I get I get bears every couple months. I'll get a black bear on my camera. I'll, I'll find tracks of black bear. I'll cast them for good practice. And mm-hmm. um, you know, if I was a bear hunter, I, I know where I can go sit certain times of the year. And, and you know, in the bear hunting season's longer, um, you know, because they are going to stay down low for a while. So um, you know, that that I've learned is keeping track of the vegetation that's readily available. Um, because that that has taught me to know where to look for bears or, or where a bear will pass through. So, and I'm just hoping that because maybe we you know we speculate that a Sasquatch diet is the same or very close to a bear's diet. If a bear can be sustained in these woods, you know, so could a Sasquatch. And you know, I'm just hoping, hey, you know, I'm going to get that get that picture, you know, my game cam. And um, well, you know, speaking of the game cams, I mean, have you picked up a picked up anything interesting on your game cams uh anything questionable even if it's it's very questionable but have you picked up anything questionable you you, you did share uh i think on the bigfoot ops page a, a, a questionable uh trail cam pick uh you made no claims about it but uh you know i i know your height and and the reported height of whatever this was in this this trail cam picture um i, I thought it was interesting you know i mean not absolute by no means but interesting right well you know and that's that's you know i, I have a amazon you know um, account and i try to purchase a lot of building materials and so forth on my amazon visa which builds up points and every time i get about 300 dollars worth of points i get a new trail camera so i've been doing that <laughs> you know, for the last you know two or three years and so i've gotten some pretty decent um trail cameras i got 12 of them and um, I'll put them all out there. And, and I would get frustrated before because I, you know, would get a whole bunch of pictures of, you know, maybe parts of a deer and, you know, depending on where I place my camera. And um, this trapping uh, friend of mine, he's, he's a neighbor, um, he says, well, man, if you want to get game cam pictures of Bigfoot, you know, you should put your cameras up a little higher. Cause, uh, you know, you'll miss a lot of the lower stuff. But if you keep them at a certain height, that, that would pretty much dictate what you're seeing, and, you know, even if it's a maybe, you know, if you have it placed higher than your deer are, you're not going to get a mistaken picture of a part of a deer because the camera's too high. 
and I've done that on a, and on a couple of occasions, um, I got what looks like a hairy elbow walking past my camera. But I mean, of course, it's not definitive because it just it looks like an elbow. And if you look at something long enough, you can probably talk yourself into anything. But um, but it was at a height where I had this camera at my head level. So this camera, the lens was like shooting me right in the nose. And so that's right, you know, a little over five feet off the ground. And just the profile of what I think looks like an elbow and there's hair coming off of it. And it's bright. It's almost bright white because it's so close to the camera that the flash, you know, kind of bleeds out a lot of the image. But I, you know, take it over to my hunting buddy's um, house and have him look at it. And uh, my brother-in-law, who are hunters, and ask him, hey, what part of an elk could this be? Because it's too high off the ground for deer and it's too close. And and um, you know, it, it you know, they got no answer. So, so that's a maybe. Um, the picture I posted on Bigfoot Ops is a pretty unique picture um, because the um, I- image you see is on the right hand of the picture to where the subject came from. You know, if you're standing, if you're the camera looking out, it came from right, and then it triggered the next two photos, which I assumed then the, the you know the subject kept on going to the left and crossed out of view. And um, the image, it, it's a close-up, so it's within probably a foot of the tree because my comparison photo is the same. I'm about 10 to 12 inches, or when I say from the tree, I mean from the face of the camera. So my comparison picture is also me that distance away. And it looks like a, a shoulder profile of a big, you know, dark fur-covered creature. Um, I've tried to run it through, print or, or um Photoshop and Lightroom and changing contrast and hues. It looks like there could be hair on the very edges, you know, when you when you um, zoom in, when you isolate little areas of the picture. And it looks like maybe at the top of the picture, there's uh, it goes from shoulder to trapezium muscle. But, you know, it's really hard to see. The only comparison is when I have my picture next to it, and I just took my picture and I superimposed it on the other picture that you know of the subject in it i lined the trees up so i know i got the picture and you know the heights in the right spot and um whatever it is 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 much much taller than i am um but because it's only a partial it's really hard to you know say well i I ran it by john pickering and he says well you know crows could land on your camera and give you a you know an odd image and i have seen pictures of what people believe to be Bigfoots later turned out to be, you know, parts of a crow, and you know, so I know that that's possible. But um, but that was a maybe. You know, the the, the one thing that yeah. led, led me to believe it might not be a crow is when I put the camera up, there was this three-inch round branch on the ground in front of the tree. I had to stand on it to get close enough to the tree to put my camera on the tree, and then and it didn't break beneath my weight. You know, it, it held me and. I went on my way, and three months later when I came back and pulled this camera and got that image, that branch right where that subject was in the picture frame was broke. Something something else had stood on it and broke it. Um, you know, And I know a crow couldn't have done that. So it just kind of, you know, makes you, you know, kind of say, hmm, you know, maybe a lot of tall grass in that area. There's a definite trail there, you know, and I know elk have gone through there. I've taken pictures of elk going through there, but what I captured on that image was definitely not an elk. It 
had to have been a tall bear, but there was no scratches on the tree. There was no no hair on the tree where a bear could have, you know, got backed up to it to scratch his back or something. Um, right. Because they, they'll leave hair behind, and, you know, there, there was none of that there. So, you know, but it was, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. I know a lot of people think Bigfoot's are afraid of cameras and walk the other way from them, but... Um, you know, I, I I keep using them. It, it, it makes me go into research areas that I wouldn't normally go to because I am checking my cameras, and it makes me go there at least once a month into these areas, and it um, allows me to keep really good track of what's going on in there, even if I don't get an image on 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 the camera. Yeah, it's it's a very uh, it's a very interesting um, trail cam pic. I mean, picture. It's very interesting to me. Uh, not dependent by no means, uh, but it's interesting. It's it's one of the better ones uh, that I've seen recently uh, as a possibility. I mean, that's just what it is, a possibility. It, you, you don't know what it is, and exactly. I appreciate your candor. You know, I mean, you don't come out and say, oh, i got a Sasquatch on my, my choke cam. No, no, no. No, you're open to it. It could be other things, but it is interesting. Um, you know, when I, when I had, when I, when you shared it with, with me, I, I looked at it and, was, and I, I found it interesting. Uh, I've seen other, uh, troll cam pigs, uh, um, out there and I found a couple that were similar to yours that were possible possibilities. So, um, you know, it, it's just interesting and, and I'm all for troll cameras. I, you know, like you mentioned, you know, some people think that they, they, stay away from them, you know, Bigfoot stay away from them. They avoid them. They're afraid of them, whatever. Um, I, 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 just think it's almost like a needle in a haystack. I don't think people realize that, you know, I think there's like these, you know, all these trail camera, trail cams out there. And, uh, you know, it's hard sometimes to get anything on your trail camera. You know, some of the ones we have um, in the Olympics, for example, some of the ones I've, I, I have in Mount Hood and Mount Adams, you can get nothing at times. Uh, and then every once in a while you get a bear or an elk or deer coming through there or, or some other little critter or a bird. Um, but it can be very difficult. I mean, just because you have it out there for weeks or months on end doesn't mean you're going to come away with anything. Uh, uh, you know, and, and if Sasquatch is this elusive, it's not mind-boggling to me that we don't get them on trail cameras. It just doesn't blow my mind. I don't find that uh, to be an it, you know an issue in my head. I, I think one of these days someone's going to get a really, really good shot. And, of course, you know, if you do, it's going to get scrutinized like you wouldn't believe, but oh, yeah. you know, yep, to, be, you know. to be expected. <laughs> yep. And I use all those pictures for my, you know, tools for my own research. I'm not trying to convince the world of anything if I do get one, but because I know my area and I know the, you know, the, the amount of likelihood of another person or somebody pulling a hoax or doing something, you know, or zero in those areas, then I know for myself you know what's going on. Like like I said, you get that great trail cam shot. You may share that with people, and then people will shoot it down. But you know, you know for yourself what that yeah. picture is and what it isn't, and you just use that as your own tool in your research. Right. Exactly. And that you know brings me to my next point, uh, Chuck. Is that you're very much uh, one of the things I appreciate about you is you're very much under the radar. You avoid all the. Uh, negativity that's shared online or discussed online so you know you're very much under the radar for the most part and and just go about your business and and adhere to uh, your research and and just avoid uh all the negative stuff out there i mean there's a ton of crap posted and shared and and attacks 
you avoid all that. I mean, uh, and that's stellar uh, and to to be commended because uh, you, I when when I look at someone like yourself, I have to go, well, this, you know, this guy's in it for the right reasons. He's in it for his own personal research, and he he shares with those that are like minded. You know, um, you know, what are your thoughts? I, I just really really appreciate that. Oh, well, I, thanks for saying that. You know, I, I've learned that from you guys. You know, because cause I remember going on the first expedition and, um, you know, talking with you guys, you know, and, and that's what I appreciate about you guys. You, you guys make yourself available for brand new people you never met before to come and talk to you and bounce things off of you guys. And, you know, and, and I've seen some things and I've shown you guys some things, you know, and you kind of just, you know, shrug your shoulders. Oh, hey, you know, yeah, great track, you know, and um, I was asking Derek, you know, one, it was, uh, I think, my second outing or my last outing. Anyway, Derek and I, we, I found a track, and I pointed it out to Derek. Hey, check that out. And he goes, hey, that's cool. And I go, what do you think? Take a picture, you know, um, cast it. You know, I was kind of getting excited. And he goes, nah, nah, that'll just give other people something to bitch about. And we, <laughs> see, we see a lot of those things. And we get back to the, you know, the, the big headquarters there, and, um, you know, you guys have shelves full of casts, you know, and, and it just, it's, nothing to get really excited about and the main point was other people they almost just live for tearing down your evidence or the things that you're you know that you're seeing um and so why set yourself up for you know people knocking you down to discourage you from getting out in the field and you know and do what you do and um that's what i appreciated because not not engaging in debates over pictures or popularity contests and so forth keeps me enjoying what I do, you know, and that's why right. I do it. I find peace of mind when I do it. It gets me away from work. It allows me to focus on something other than bills and politics and, you know, because none of that stuff exists when you're out there researching. Uh, so and well said. Cool yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, I, I always told people I, I like to go, you know, for me, it's a hobby, and I go out and, and I like to bigfoot with people that I like and enjoy their company. You know, yep. And that's and and the the people that spend a lot of time. And I I also uh, am really convinced that bigfoot will never be proven on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Nope. <laughs> it's not where it's going to happen. So yeah, it it and it. I, I uh, the last time that I was up at the OP, uh, we got we went up and retrieved trail cams, and uh, and Chuck and I were part of the. In fact, I uh, turned around, and kicked Chuck uh, at one point. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, but not because of something it, I said. It was because of no, me, no, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It had nothing to do with Chuck. It was shaking a a, a, a ground hornet off my. Uh, my leg. We seem to hit every uh, uh, nest on the hillside. So, yep. um, but it was uh, it was good times. The, so, Chuck, what what would be the most compelling um, evidence that that you've collected in your efforts to date? Well, you know, you've got. Well, I've got you know a couple of decent casts that show toes. I've got you know some howls and some good screams. I sent you guys a second one that um, Tom or um, Dave Ellis thought was um, you know the, the real deal or pretty close to what he could define as a real deal based on um, um, sonic visualizer on the spectrogram. Um, and those you know all sound good, and, but to me, 
to me, well, the most convincing thing are are the tree knocks. When I when I'm out in the woods, and you hear that you hear that distinct tree knock. I mean, you you can say, okay, those tracks, you know, maybe maybe a bear, you know, stood this way and changed directions, and that's why the track looks like it does. You know, you can explain that away, and you know, the howls, and you know, it, it could be that we haven't seen a, a spectrogram signature of a wolf or of a coyote yet, and maybe that's what we're interpreting. I mean, people skeptics can play that off, but the knocks, and the knocks to me, you know, what else is doing that in the woods? Now, when you say knock, you know, we try to, you know, us who've heard it, you know, we kind of know what we're talking about. But when you're, when you're talking to a skeptic or somebody else is not into it, you're talking about, you know, the knocks. Like my brother-in-law, for an example, he's in the woods a lot. And uh, when I explained to him, boy, you know, we just, right, before, right, right, right after we go to bed, we go into the camper and I'll set up my recording stuff. And then we start hearing the knocks and they come right close around her. And I'm explaining this to him and, and I'm recording it. And he's, you know, I share my recordings with him. He hears it and he goes, well, you know, that could be an elk just stepping on a branch and that could be a branch falling from a tree because an owl landed in it. And, and he's explaining some of the things, these things. And so I took him out with me. And we just sat in the tailgate of his truck at night. And, you know, he goes, well, when do you expect things to start happening? And I go, well, you know, about two, three hours after sundown, which is pretty close to, you know, what it was when we were sitting there. And sure enough, we hear the knocks, and my brother-in-law's eyes just, you know, widen out, and he goes, you know, that can't be an elk stepping on a branch. That, you know, he he just, we were hearing these, you know, knocks against trees. It was just like a baseball bat to a tree, and we're the only ones out there. And he's like, you know, there's no way an elk or a bear is doing that, you know, and he's getting, he's getting kind of excited. And, he, and when you go hunting, you know, you're down, you're asleep shortly after dark in the winter or, or by about nine ten o'clock because you're up the next morning at four thirty five o'clock getting in, into the woods. You miss a lot of stuff. And so we're just sitting there listening to that, and, and you can hear movement in the trees, and then all of a sudden behind us you hear the knock again. And in my mind, you know, you, you can't explain that. You you can't say, well, then the elk went over to that side of you guys and stepped on a branch, or now a branch fell from a high tree from behind you. You know, I mean, it's it's too um, purposeful to be coincidental in the woods. And so that that to me is one of my most you know evidences that I see that there's something out there doing that. Now, of course, I haven't had a clear sighting you know uh, ben has i know some of the olympic project have so they don't you know they don't need those things to convince them if you've had a, a sighting but if you've never had a sighting and you're brand new into the subject and you know wildlife and you spend time in the woods but you just have never had a sighting when you hear those knocks when you witness that around you and it's moving around you you, you know you can't explain that away to bears or elk or you know it's just it's it's something's you know hitting a tree whether whether it's with a cupped hand or with another branch you know you can't tell um that night we got to hear what i believe was chest slapping and i have it on um audio and that's the first thing my brother-in-law said was that sounds like a gorilla just slapping his chest like you know like you see on national geographic and i'm going yeah are you sure that's not a bear are you sure that's not an elk i'm trying to <laughs> i'm trying to tell him what it might be and He's going, no way, you know. He, 
that next morning he told me, you know, and, and he's in the woods a lot, and he says, man, I'll never listen to the woods the same again after that night. And so that, you know, like I said, that, that to me is the most compelling, the tree knocks, you know, not, not just the, the twigs breaking and, you know, and we've, we've recorded trees falling over, and in your mind you can think, oh, Bigfoot just pushed that tree over. But, you know, trees do fall over. Trees do get old, and, you know, that stuff just happens. But, but the raps against trees that happen more than once and in different locations around you, that, that's, you, can't, you can't write that off to bears and elk and, you know, natural occurrences. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've experienced, you know, I had a sighting back in 2011, and during that sighting, or uh, prior to the sighting, there was, you know, uh, whatever you want to call them, tree knocks uh, that were so powerful, you could feel them in your tent. So there was no way uh, we tried to mimic uh, these knocks after the event took place and couldn't even come close. They were so powerful, you could feel them in your tent. And we've had uh, similar events. Uh, that was Mount Hood area. We've had similar events in um, in uh, the Tillamook area that we research, you know, and I know this has happened at the Olympics as well. These, these knocks are so profound and so, like you said, a baseball bat to a tree. It's just, it's amazing yep. uh, to to hear and experience at times. Um, they're just uncanny. <laughs> it's, 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 it's uh, you know, and about yeah. those those knocks that when me and Ben did the, this uh, experiment where we set up our parabolics every night for a week without us being there. So we would get there about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, we get off work. And, um, during that week, you know, I had a light work schedule and I, I could be home and, you know, it's only about 45 minutes from my front door to our research area. And so, um, we get there and he has his areas you know, and we log them on our GPS and we, we got a nice big map where we know where each other's stuff is. And so he's checking his batteries and SD cards and I'm doing the same thing. And when we reviewed those, um, we were still hearing knocks in the areas that we would hear them when we weren't there. And they weren't every night, but, you know, two out of the um, seven nights that we did this, we could hear the same kind of knocking as if as if we were there, like it was happening around us. Because we used to think, you know, they're doing that to us, and, and maybe the knock is telling other Bigfoots, hey, there's a human here, or or something, but when we did that experiment without us even being there and we were still hearing knocks, you know, it kind of lead it, you know, leads us to believe maybe they're just doing that as, as uh, locationers to each other as mm-hmm. they move as they move through the woods, um, you know, unless they observe us setting up our stuff and they're knocking because there's equipment around, you know, which I doubt. I mean, I, I just, I don't believe... Uh, you know, sometimes you pull into an area, if there's a Bigfoot around, I think they could take a look at you out of curiosity, but not every time, you know, mm-hmm. the odds are pretty low. So um, just I think they they do that more, letting each other know where they are as they move through an area that they maybe don't walk, you know, follow each other like we do when we naturally hike through the woods. I think they, they you know, there might be 20, 30 yards from each other as they move through the woods. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Letting each other know if they found a food source or something. Yeah, without, yeah. without having to make an audible vocalization. Now, now we've we've spoken about uh, tree knocks and howls and all that. Have you recorded or heard in person whistles, or have you had like trees uh, pushed over in uh, precarious circumstances uh, where there was no wind or anything like that? But have you 
heard any other oddities besides some of the, the uh, mentioned? Yep, you know, in, in this research area, um, and so when I say research area, this is like a seven-square-mile area, but there's one focal area that we believe they come off this ridge. They move through this wooded area, and this wooded area starts out narrow right at the base of, of this ridge. They come down. We believe they come down. But then it widens out. So it is, um, for an example, it's about a quarter mile wide at the base of this ridge. And then as you go towards the river or away from the ridge, it, it's almost a mile wide. So there's this like triangle area of wooded area that gets bigger as you move away from the ridge. And so in there is where we hear most of our stuff. And we've heard there's no wind, it's a still night, and we've recorded and have been witness to hearing what sounds like trees being pushed over. So it, it doesn't sound like tree hitting tree falling down, you know, there's no wind, but we're hearing what sounds like roots breaking and then tree hitting the ground and we've heard that um we've recorded it twice and then of course the, the third time we were there hearing that and then we spend the night and the next morning we go look for that tree and try and look for tracks and the tough thing is it's always in areas where there's other you know um, debris and pine dander and stuff and it's hard to you know find tracks and stuff like that and try to look at where maybe a hand might have been guesstimating on the height of that tree to push it over and these aren't big huge tall 100 foot tall trees these are always Mm -hmm. you know uh, 35 maybe 40 foot trees that are about you know 12 to 16 inches at the you know diameter at the base so they're not monster trees but they're small enough to where i i know wind's not blowing them over you know because they don't have that big of a footprint with the branches above them really to catch that much wind and these are on nights that's not windy so we try to rule all that out and um so there there have been on one night in particular uh, my wife and i were sitting and we don't hear anything we don't hear any howls no owls no coyotes no knocks it's very quiet and it's about one o'clock in the morning and you know my wife's kind of giving me the body language that she's ready to go home it's getting cold (laughs) and um I says, you know what, I'm going to make some noise. And um, I stand over to, the, to this little valley, and of course you can't see the valley because there's a bunch of trees and everything, but you know that from the topography it runs down. And I, I do my best imitation of a silverback gorilla of the whoa, 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 into the valley, as loud as I could. Um, and I take a little, you know, about a 16-inch long cheer cone, you know, like football games, you have a cone you can yell through and it amplifies your voice, cheer cone. So I use something like that when I try to do um, howls and so forth, you know, from myself out in the woods. And so I do that. And before I could turn around and sit in my chair, we heard this tree come down. So I'm like, whoa, hey, I talked my wife into staying another hour. So maybe, you know, something's going to come check us out. We don't do any other noise. We don't do any knocks. We just sit in the chair and we're, you know, we talk in low voices. And this tree sound like it came down, you know, probably... 50, 60 yards from us. You know, it's, it's hard to tell in the dark, and it's hard to tell how, you know, noise carries in the woods. And so we're sitting there, and again, nothing's happening. So we start picking up the lawn chairs. We're going to leave. Now it's about 1.50 in the morning, and I tell my wife, well, I'm going to do that again, just, you know, one more time because mm-hmm. we got action out of it last time. So I do the same thing, and we hear another tree come down, but it's, further away from us on the other side of this this little ravine 
like back up the other side. So it's almost straight across from us, but it's further away. And we hear that come down. And my wife's like, well, whatever that is, is pissed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's leave, you know. And, and um, of course, I want to stand there, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to hear something else, you know, something audible. You know, nothing happens, and then we leave. But um, on that circumstance, I was convinced that it, that would be a Sasquatch because it was just, it was too coincidental to happen both times that I make that um, that sound and you get that kind of response. And, right. it, and again, it was within about 30, 40 seconds after I did the response. It's always when I turn around and get ready to walk back to my chair that then you hear the noise and um, we're able to record that um, along with my you know silverback you know, noise. Um, so I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. No, it's very interesting. You know, back in 2013, a buddy and I were out in a research area of mine up in the Mount Hood area, and we were around this lake, and he he was on one side of the lake and I was on the other side of the lake. And it wasn't a big lake. It's a a remote, small mountain lake, uh, but it's in a valley, and you could, uh, we were just kind of screwing around. Basically, we were fishing. As well, but we're kind of screwing around, so I'd clap and it would echo off the wall, and he'd make a noise and echo off the wall, and he started hearing these grunts, and uh, he was thinking, "Oh man, that this this is weird. These grunts are close." And we had walkies, and we're talking back and forth, and he started getting a little antsy. So I said, "Well, just come back around and meet me over here," and I continued to uh, do some like uh, I slapped my hand together and echo off the wall, and um, he meets up with me. And we started hearing these odd whistles, you know. And we probably heard two or three really odd whistles, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, we're sitting there listening. And so I do another clap noise, bounces off the wall, and then all of a sudden, I mean, there's no wind. There's It's just a really nice day. And this tree just <laughs> falls over. Um, you knew it was a tree. It, you know, that, that classic crack and then crash. And... Uh, you know, we both were a little concerned at the time, and uh, we knew that it was in the direction of our camp where we'd been camping. And there's a small trail, a small game trail. And um, as we're heading back, sure enough, this tree is right across the trail, uh, 34 yards from our tent. And it just, it was just the whole uh, circumstance, you know, was odd because you had this tree fall over, there's no wind, um, you had these weird whistles, and he, I never heard the grunts he had, but uh, as we're looking across the lake, we also noticed this bush just shaking violently, and there's no wind, just shaking just violently. And um, he, I mean, uh, he he wasn't real experienced in the woods. Went on, he wanted to get out of there, and I wanted to spend another night, but he wanted to get out of there. I said, well, you know, uh, given all that's taking place, yeah, I, I I'll leave as well. But uh, the whole experience was really odd, and uh, the fact that we heard some just odd whistles and. When I, you know, can I say Sasquatch did it? No, but it, I, I don't know what did. The right. whole experience was odd. <laughs> you know, it's just odd. Well, you know, I, I tried that because at one of the um, expeditions um, there at Derek's, Adam Davies was there. And um, they had heard something along one of the trails, and Adam Davies said he did that silverback grunting noise and got a response up on that. <laughs> up on that ridge, and I, I remember, I, I can't remember if you were with us, I know Dr. Meldrum was with us. Yeah, I was there, yeah. Yep, and, you know, Derek went and tried that, and um, I, talking to Adam 
after that, he says, well, you know, if there's another male in there and if he hears a male trying to assert dominance, you're going to get a reaction. You're going to get, you know, a display of some kind. And that's what we were trying to do that night. And then um, I remember watching a program on uh, TV about mountain gorillas. And it was um, a female biologist, and she had these other guys with her that were um, guiding her in. And they're filming this uh, silverback who's laying down, and then all of a sudden he gets up into a sitting position, and he has his head up. He's looking up in the sky, and he's listening. And so the gal, the biologist is telling you, or the primatologist is telling you, he senses something in the woods. And as they're filming him, he grabs a branch above him and rips it right down. And this gal goes on to say, he senses or hears another male in the area that does not belong to his group, and he's letting him know that he hears him and he knows where he's at. And then right after that male silverback did that, he did those 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 grunts, those ooh, 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 yeah. display, and he's listening more, and then the, the, the little you know family group moves off. And so um, I think, you know, if you got another male in the area that's, displaying like that, you know, because the females never did any of those things. Now, the young ones, the juveniles, they, you know, knock stuff down all the time and play and, you know, but I think when you get those big tree crashes in the night after vocalizing like that, you know, there's, there's a good chance that's a male doing the, you know, displaying like that. Well, yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, <clears throat> I was present that, that night with when Adam Davis was out there and uh, um, it was, it was, kind of profound you know we had a lot of activity going uh there you know uh people heard grunts and uh, something moving along the the ridge line there and mm-hmm. uh we had uh actually gone out the following night and it was really quiet i had placed recorders out there and, and that night and before we had arrived i recorded some pretty amazing stuff in my opinion mm-hmm. but before we had gone you know after we'd gone out there after uh the following night uh it was really quiet and Meldrum had uh, you know, said, "Hey, can anybody hear whistle?" And I remember Keith, uh, Keith who was out, of, uh, Keith uh, Vasquez, he was out of Texas, and uh, he said, "I can whistle." And Meldrum said, "Well, whistle, we really don't have much going on here." So, and he made out, you know, he made out this really loud, piercing whistle and got a, a immediate response. I mean, was it a bird? I don't know, but it was just, I mean, it was real on the spot uh, a couple hundred yards away and uh man that was that was it for the night but it was just the the timing and everything else was was pretty neat in the area that given this this activity that we had prior and an area that i recorded some pretty uh phenomenal stuff uh it was it was pretty interesting <laughs> yeah you know I, the the whistles you know we've only heard whistles maybe on three occasions you know in the three years and and you know, and when I say whistle, I, I kind of wipe out everything that's a couple hours before dawn and a couple hours after sunset because of the type of birds. You know, you get those stellar jays, and they will shrill whistle all the time, but only in those, you know, after dark and pre-dawn stuff. And we have um, have heard one one whistle that was like, that would make you scratch your head because it was like that shrill whistle that Keith did that night. You know, you put your two fingers in your in your um, mouth and you get your tongue just yeah. right and you blow real hard. It was that kind of whistle, just that right. whistle real yep. loud. Um, yeah. you know, we've heard that, but nothing, I mean, that's, you know, one time out of the whole time we've been out there. And 
I don't know if they do that just to get a reaction or a charge out of you because I you don't yeah. I don't hear it enough to think that they do that to each other. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. Now you have uh, you you provided another recording, Chuck. Uh, I, I I label it March twenty eighth. Yep. Uh, do you want to talk about it a little bit, and then I'll play that. Sure. Now, um, on that day, um, earlier that day, me and my brother uh, went to go do a camera check. And so um, on our way down to, to check our cameras, we find this trail of four tracks. And I took some pictures of them. I showed you guys those when I was the last time we, we um, were over there at uh, Derek's place. Mm-hmm. And um, they were just impressions in the grass. They go uphill, and the strides were, were pretty big to where, you know, when I walk uphill, it's almost one foot in front of the other. You know, I'm taking these little steps to get uphill. And these were pretty, you know, good strides. And um, the tracks themselves, though, were right about 14 inches. You know, not impossible for somebody big in a boot, you know, to make them. But the width, the width were beyond six and a half inches. Um, and my hiking boot, I have a size 12 boot, you know, which measures with a tape measure about 12 and a half inches, but it's only three and three quarters at the heel and maybe four and a quarter at, at, at the toe or at the ball of your foot. So whatever this was, was in excess of six inches wide at the ball of the foot and over four inches at the heel in the grass that it that it made these tracks. So we're checking them out, and I'm logging. I'm trying to follow them, you know, to see because they are in between um, a well-used game trail below us and a well-used one above us. These these tracks kind of cut right in between, and we came upon them because we took a shortcut down this ridge to get to my cameras because when I see my cameras on my GPS, I just go straight to them like, like A to B, a straight line, instead of meandering my way around. Um, you know, to try and take the, the path of least resistance, I go right through. And so we came across these tracks, and I was like, wow, you know, we took pictures, my brother and I looking at them, we're trying to track where they came from. We we went back the other way, and it was pretty interesting. And then when I came out of the woods, um, Ben was just coming into the woods. So I was there all day and was going to go home that evening. And Ben comes in the evening, stays all night sometimes, and he leaves the next morning. And if he hears something, he tells me where he thinks he heard it. I come back the next morning, and then I kind of grid search that area. I'll zigzag in that area and try to find sign, you know, you know, which is, again, a needle in a haystack, but it, it gets you out into those areas. So um, when I was leaving, I asked Ben, hey, are you going to set up some audio recording tonight? And he goes, yeah, I'm going to do it right, you know, right here at this area that we, you know, we call uh, Delta. And so... I go, hey, that's great because right behind me, you know, probably 150 yards into these woods, I found some tracks. The tracks were heading this way. So something was there that morning and may still be there, you know, throughout the day. Maybe it's foraging, it's hanging out. And so uh, we set up our audio that night and we set up multiple, you know, so that way we get a, a better chance of recording something. And then, you know, I think that was shortly after midnight, we got that that um, that recording um, yeah. and that recording was in the direction that the tracks were going and in between those tracks and this ridge so after midnight it was like it was moving back towards the ridge where we think they come down at so and, and during the day we have heard knocks during the day and we've heard whoops during the day in this foraging area 
So I, I think they come down to maybe hang out sometimes for a day or two before they go back up on that ridge, you know, um, because it's not always quiet and vacant during the day. We we do hear some things. And so um, that night he got that recording, and um, yeah. I sent it to Dave Ellis and said, hey, what do you think? You know, and Dave says, wow, this is one of your guys' best ones yet. You know, and <laughs> it, it's a pretty good, pretty good recording. Yeah, pretty good recording. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play it now, so uh, stay tuned. Hold on. Okay. Yeah, exactly. uh, as to where it, the, the, where the sounds were coming from. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I'm curious as two questions here. I'm curious as to um, your your thoughts on stick structures in general, and also the possible sleeping patterns of a Sasquatch. I mean, by patterns, I mean, well, I, I think this is a flesh and blood blood creature. Where do they sleep? How do they sleep? When do they sleep? Uh, are they nocturnal? Are they, uh, you know, diurnal? Uh, so, so. You know, what are your thoughts on stick structures and 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 whatnot? But also, when it comes to um, a Sasquatch sleeping, where do they sleep? Uh, how do they sleep? The whole nine. Well, on the stick structures, you know, I haven't witnessed a whole lot of stick structures. When I mean structures, you know, these are things put together. Um, there's been a couple, and I've posted these pictures on uh, Bigfoot Ops Facebook page where um, in between two old cedar stumps, all of the willow oak has bent over these stumps to form kind of a, a roof. And the pictures I posted, I'm standing in front of it, and then the next picture, I'm gone. Well, I'm actually inside of it standing up. And um, right near that little structure, if that's what you want to call it, or shelter, um, there have been, I've I found deer bones leg bones right near there so i know there's a predator in there and i know there's a deer kill in there now whether it's associated with that shelter i I couldn't tell you but they were bent down both ways so the willows were growing on each side of the stumps the stumps were about five feet apart um and they're probably six foot tall so there's you know pretty good old lumber cut stumps been rotting away for years but these uh, willow oaks have been pulled down to the middle on each side so the tops of these willows are bent down to where each side's touching each other over the center so i know if wind did it or snow did it, it they'd all be bent down the same way you know not opposing each other facing in so it, right. they're all intertwined they've been growing that way a little bit since they're in that way i thought that was very interesting but i've never i've seen some questionable you know um sticks placed in precarious ways, you know, that, well, maybe the wind, they drop like that. You know, you don't know. I haven't seen any that made me go, ah. But um, one thing I did find, I am finding, and I don't know if it's just right now it's in the realm of coincidental or just an anomaly, but in two different areas in our research area, you know, and this would be almost a year apart, I've had my game cameras set up along this one ridge that, that we hardly go to because it's really hard to get to. So you got to have, you got to, you know, got to eat your Wheaties in the morning to get to this area where I put these cameras. And so I took my wife and my daughter with me one day, we made it a full day to get to these five cameras. Three of the five cameras behind the cameras had new X formations behind them. So I take before and after pictures of my cameras and it helps me kind of remember where they are. And there's no X formations behind them. But when I came back to get the cameras and to view them on my um, viewer, these two cameras, or these three out of the five cameras, had what looked like X formations. Now, two of them look like it could have just, they could have just, the branches could have just fell that way. It's not impossible they could have fell that way. But the third one was the before picture. These two um, trees are standing up behind my camera, behind a tree, and they're smaller. They're only about six inches around each of these trees, and they're very. Both of them were the same, but they were 
pulled together to form an X, and they were broke about a foot, maybe 14 inches from the ground, same height on both trees, and then pulled together in the center of each other. So it wasn't a lopsided X. It was a very well-centered, symmetrical X behind my Press camera. Break. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they were broke at the bottom, but then leaning against each other at the intersection. So they were still sitting in the air, but there wasn't a it wasn't a clean break from that stump. It was just broke at the stump. And I thought that was very interesting. Then when I took my brother-in-law with me to go yeah. find one of my cameras, I couldn't find it on my GPS. We were in the tree canopy, and sometimes you lose signal with your GPS and. You know, I'm trying to look for camera number eight, and, you know, and, yeah, it's supposed to be within 80 feet of it. And my brother-in-law goes, it wouldn't be over here by this X. Did you mark it with an X? And I'm going, what the hell are you talking about? We go walk over to that camera, and sure enough, behind the camera, there's an X formation. Now, this one was only about six feet off the ground, you know, so the, the, the branches were six or seven um, or the trees. I don't want to say branches. They were, they were trees that were once vertical, and then they were pulled together to form an X behind my camera. And I says, wow. I go, that's happened before. And my brother-in-law likes, wow, that, that's happened before? He goes, well, I'm really curious to see what's on this camera, you know, for an image. And I go, well, when it happened before, and I'm referring to this time I took my wife and daughter with, there were no images on those cameras. The other cameras got deer and got an elk or something. But on those three out of the five cameras that had an X pattern or formation behind them, there were zero images on those cameras. I mean, not even elk walked in front of them. Not even deer walked in front of them. Mm. And the same was true with this camera that my, my brother and I, we thought was lost, and I found it because there was an X marked right behind it. There was no images at all on that camera. No, Nothing walked in front of it. And so that kind of boggles me. I don't know if the X formations, if the, if that's the universal stay away you know, we, we we draw a circle and put an X in it, and it means bad, stay away. If if that means the same thing in the woods. Um, when I had that encounter over in the remote area with my wife and daughter, and I found those behind my cameras, I, I really just blew it off, you know, well, because I posted some of those pictures, and, you know, some people reply back, oh, that just naturally happens. And, well, if it was a Bigfoot, it would have been like this, or it would have been like that. And, you know, right. So I just kind of wrote it off. And then, um, and this was about, uh, three months ago, my brother-in-law and I went to go find his camera, and then the only way we found it was this X behind it. I was like, holy smokes. The, the, <laughs> di- the distance between the two cameras, the two incidences, were about five miles. It's you know, the One was on one side of this um, little mountain range, and three, four months ago was on the north side of it. And, um, yeah, so it was... Uh, and in, the, in that area, my brother-in-law noted... He goes, man, there ain't one berry on any of these bushes, and there are no mushrooms. Mushrooms should be plentiful in here because of the canopy, and it's wet. And, and all the mushrooms my brother-in-law showed me are all pulled out, half-eaten. I mean, there was some debris around there. He says, but something come through here and just cleaned everything out. And so, mm-hmm. you know, back in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I wonder if a Bigfoot was foraging in here, saw my camera, and put that little formation behind it, and stay away from here you know right yeah you can't roll it out i mean it's just it's interesting that you you found these uh x formations multiple times and uh there are many others that reported similar um structures or formations 
around areas of research. So it's it's one of those things that uh, you can't rule as a Sasquatch 100% by no means, but that you take in and, and put in the interesting file. Right. You know, and as you start seeing those things, just like footprints, you start getting pickier about what you consider evidence or data. I mean, you know, not every nice big track I see, I consider a Bigfoot track. I look at it at different angles and if if it could be anything else, I almost sometimes discard it. And sometimes now with the X formations that I see, I'm doing the same thing. If it's not a symmetrical X, like we would mm-hmm. make pulling it to the center of ourselves and maybe intersecting like where our head would be, you know, because naturally that's what we do. Right hand, left hand, pull it in the middle. That's your X. You know, if they're lopsided X's, if they're, you know, only one, you know, one tree's vertical, maybe leaning a little bit, and the other branch, you know, kind of crosses it. It could be an X. You know, I discard all of those. I don't even consider those Bigfoot related. But if it's a symmetrical one mm-hmm. and they intersect at the same height, and it's like, wow, some, something did this. This is a windfall. You know? Right. Especially if they're fresh and you've been in the area recently and they weren't there before and uh, yeah, it, it adds to the question as to well, something possibly did this and why. <laughs> yep, you know, and I've never ever have seen an, an X formation in the trees in the forest that I didn't have a camera in that spot. Yeah, I've never walked up into a trail or seen anything off trail that even resembled an X formation if I didn't have a camera there. You know what I'm saying? I, I haven't yeah. seen it just happen, you know, marking anything else. I've only seen them around cameras. And it was just funny that my brother-in-law said that, hey, did you mark it with this X? And he points to the trees, and they're bent over, you know, pulled into each other like an X. And I'm going, holy smokes, yeah, sure enough, my camera's on the other side of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, you know, part of my second question was, you know, what what are the uh, you know possibilities for Sasquatch sleeping patterns or where do they sleep? I mean, do you think Sasquatch hunkers down like elk do, or or do they find a cave, or have you seen found anything interesting uh, nests or anything like that? Um, well, I've found what looked like a nest, um, and again, I posted that picture on face on the Bigfoot Ops Facebook page, uh-huh. and um, but. You know, I found a couple of the ends of the furbos were cut. You know, they were just too clean. So I don't know if they were brought from somewhere else or if somebody did that. You know, it's probably four to six feet in diameter. It was not a perfect circle. It was kind of oblonged a little bit, you know. Um, but I haven't ever found any other nesting sites, you know, that I, that I would think was a nest. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the sleeping habits, you know, when you, cause I, I try to watch as much mountain gorilla and great ape documentaries as I can. I'm on YouTube watching and rewatching them. You know, Amazon, if I see a new one out, new National Geographic or DVD, I'll buy it. And that, that kind of, you know, I, I like to rewatch stuff and it reminds me of habits and behavior that the great apes do. And, you know, mountain gorillas, they'll just, you know, during the day, if it's pouring down rain, they'll just sit in that one spot. And if, and if there is shelter or if there is big palm leaves or something that they can kind of, you know, sit at the base of, or they will. But, you know, when it rains, the, you know, they don't scatter. They don't take off. They don't seek shelter. If there's something right there usable, they'll use it. Um, at night, you know, when they do go into their nest, and they make a new nest every night. You know, mountain gorillas will make a new nest nearly every night. 
sometimes they'll reuse it, sometimes they won't. Um, and then um, I think at night when uh, Jane, or, uh, Diane Fossey was able to observe them, she couldn't creep up on those nests because she noticed that a lot of them weren't sleeping. That right. when they're in their nest, they're alert, they're looking out at her, they're looking in the office. So I think, um, if I remember reading correctly in her book, Rules in the Mist, she noticed that at night the nests give them kind of a refuge or security from the night around them, whether it's predation or just sleeping better or for, for the infants or young. But during the day, they sleep the same. But during the day, they don't make nests. But when they lay down, they take, you know, many cat naps. They'll sleep for 30 to 45 minutes at a time. Then they're up and they're rolling over, moving around. Then they'll take another nap and then they'll move on. And she says they take these numerous amounts of naps during the day as they forage and, and move around. Um, I don't know if she said that was because of digesting all that forage or if that's just, you know, the group just stays in one spot. But I think a Bigfoot, right. a Bigfoot is much like that. I think only humans need eight to ten hours of sleep and can sleep that whole time, you know, undisturbed. I mean, I, I know I need that much <laughs> zero time. But I think, you know, Bigfoot's in the, you know, in the forest. I think they do the same thing. They'll They'll lay there and... They'll be in an area that they've already been foraging, and they know they're safe. So they'll kick back and take a 20-, 30-minute little cat nap and get up and move around. It, 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 number one, it conserves energy, conserves calories. Um, cat naps get, make you more alert in your awake time. I, I notice if I'm able to catch a couple of cat naps you know, during the day, if I'm in the woods or something, man, I can go all night. I don't have to have that long you know, periods of sleep. Um, right. You know, for short durations, like a weekend or something. You know, uh, I'll, I'll need to be out like ten hours if I'm out there for a full week. You know, just yeah, that tired. But I think so. Bigfoot does much the same way. He finds himself nothing to do. He's gonna sit down where he's at if he thinks it's safe and secure, and he's gonna he's gonna take a nap. I, I I don't know. I think when they have young, they might make nests and stay in them. But you know, I think the the, the popular belief is since they forage at night, they probably don't spend much time in a night nest. And because there's noise in cars or human activity or something during the day, I, I don't know if they have, you know, a place they go to even during the day mm-hmm. and uh, sleep or find refuge. You know, I've never come across caves where I'm at um, in looking there's some maybe dens, you know, maybe underneath old old growth stumps, um, you know, yeah. that I could crawl back into. But I've never found evidence, you know, of anything big or Harry's been in there to, to leave sign behind. So, you know, I, I almost think, you know, if they make a nest, it's, you know, they're spending time there with, with young, so they mm-hmm. sleep better. There's that security. And, think, and they're probably remote. If you find a possible nest or or something of that nature they're probably remote they're not going to be alongside some road or some trail they're probably remote and a lot of the sightings or or and whatnot come from a vantage point uh you know when people have a, a really good sighting or a possible sighting 
Um, seems like Sasquatch takes, you know, it's always on a ridge, or they see Sasquatches on ridges, or moving up a ridge, or whatnot. But it's always Sasquatch has this possible vantage point, you know, where they they they, they feel safe, they can retreat to. Exactly. Yep. And you know, I think Diane Fossey um, noted that in her book also is that when she did find these nests, they were up on on uh, ridges and areas above her, where in order to get to them, she had to make noise she couldn't control the amount of noise she had to make to move through the woods to get to it and it would quickly alert them to um something was approaching their nesting yeah. site or even a foraging site so i think you know they, they know their area better than us and mm-hmm. you know i think when they find that security you know they're, they're you know in course you know you i mean you and i it takes a long time to walk to a spot that's even you know a mile and with the bigfoot with its walking stride you know that of double hours I mean, you know, they can cover a lot of ground, so it's not unheard of that there may be a cave and there may be a, 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 a multi-usable nesting site that is in an area so remote that you know we just can't get to, and they they may in fact spend more time in it that we know of because they're just able to get in and out of there so fast. Right, and you know, and as stealthy as you know, as hunters or whatnot, as stealthy as we perceive ourselves to be as humans. We don't live in the woods. We don't uh, conduct our business in the woods day in, day out. We, we're uh, part-time visitors, whereas something like a Sasquatch w- w- that has to live in the woods and is in there all the time. I mean, these these suckers, I mean, qu- talk about being quiet and, and being able to, uh, like you said, you know, you're, you build your nest on a ridge or something, and or you're, that's where you're nesting down or sleeping. You can hear something come a mile away because humans, no matter how quiet we think we are, we're not quiet. <laughs> we're just yep. not, uh, you know, and we're not as alert as the the beings of the forest, these animals and whatnot. I mean, uh, to refer back to uh, taking pictures of animals, you know, uh, I don't know how many times I, I practice this like you do, Chuck, where I have my camera ready or, you know, my, my truck mount, you know, with my camera, and uh, something, uh, you know, elk or deer across the road or stand there for a second, and as soon as I get ready to take it, it's gone. It's gone, and I'm like, ah, damn it. You know, oh, man, I didn't get it. And uh, they're just that alert. You know, they give you that split second, they, and once they notice that you notice them, they're gone. Exactly. You know, that, that's you know, e- even your dog knows that when your hands go to your pocket, you're probably pulling out a treat. You know, you're probably you're, mm-hmm. you're alerting it. And I think, you know, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, when you, you Sasquatch sees you pulling a camera up to your face, he thinks it's a gun. I just think it's an instinct that... When, it, when a Bigfoot sees that you've observed it and then you start to do something with your hands, they just know to boogie. You know, they just know to start yeah. walking away because your reaction is in response to it being there. And what you're doing with your hands, it doesn't want to be around long enough to find out what it is you're doing. You know, it just seems as some of the reports that I've read and heard, if you just stand there also motionless, your, your encounter will last longer, but it's when you start doing things during the encounter, then it it leaves, it takes off. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And that seems to be uh, part of the reason we don't have this great odd, you know, video or whatnot uh, of of Sasquatches because they're just that alert um, of your, you know, of your nature. And when they see, you know, they'll say as still as a stump, but when you take focus of them and 
go about uh, reaching for your pocket or doing something, they're gone. I mean, just gone. They realize they, their cover is blown, and they're gone. Simple. <laughs> yep. Hmm. No, they just have that instinctive fear of man, you know, to um, – they're curious, but that, that curiosity – doesn't last long, you know, just long enough to satisfy that curiosity, then they move off. Right. Well, well, Chuck, uh, we're down to about four minutes here on the show. I have to ask you, what what, uh, what do you have planned for the future? Uh, you know, uh, I obviously, you're, you know, you're a Lemon Project member, and you're going to be involved with that. What do you have uh, involved uh, personally in the future for the study of Sasquatch? Uh, you know, any uh, plans immediately or big goals going on well um one of my big goals is to upgrade some of my equipment you know so my if my wife is listening she'll want to wring my neck again but uh the therm that i have doesn't record or take stills i got one of those little ps24s and it, it's a great view i can you know i can pick out elk you know uh, almost 200 yards away my horses in my neighbor's pasture i can see those i can tell what they are but i can't record ben has one of those bts's um, and it records, but you have to, you know, you have to be doing something with it, or else it'll auto shut down. One of the things I want to try and do this uh, winter and spring is, in our research area, we think we know where they're coming off this ridge, and then they do some knocks. They they're curious about us, but they have to cross this road to get into this foraging area between the road and the river, where, where we're hearing most of the howls that we record over this area. I know they have to cross this road. Well, this road, you can stand in it and look both ways almost a mile. And I would love to be able to come up with a, a therm device that I can record for, you know, longer than a couple hours, just record that road and catch an image going across it. And just and just see if my if your theory, if my theory is correct, if they are crossing that road and they're going that foraging area, they, you know, you did if you're at the right place at the right time, you should be able to get an image. But you got to have the right equipment that's going to record without you having to be there to push a button without it going yeah. into auto shutdown. Fantastic. So that's my goal. Save my pennies, more Amazon points, get a new therm. <laughs> well, Chuck, we really appreciate you coming on. I've been listening. I, I know that uh, you shared a lot of great information, and uh, we appreciate you coming on and, and uh, sharing your your research with our listeners today. So, well, I had a blast. I had a blast. I appreciate <laughs> talking with you guys, and I look forward to uh, later in the week when this podcast is available for you know to listen to. I, I like to every night before I go to bed, I like to listen to previous podcasts <laughs> from your guys' shows. So I'll look forward to hearing this one and see if uh, if I you know did myself some justice or not. <laughs> you did great. So, all right, so, well, I appreciate uh, that. We will see you up in OP, I'm sure, sometime soon. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. You bet, Chuck. Thanks, buddy. Okay, brothers. Well, good luck in the field. Okay. Great. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. You too, Chuck. Thank you. Right. Bye. Interesting stuff, Shane. I like, I mean, it. you know, he's out there um, working hard, collecting information, working on trying to, you know, um, collect some mm-hmm. add, add to the the uh, database. So, yep. Um, great show, I think. He's uh, 
he has a wealth of knowledge, and I, I, I enjoy Chuck out in the field, too. I mean, he's, he's very, very uh, calm and and uh, just a great guy. So thanks again, Chuck, for coming on. We've, uh, we're about out of time this week. Next week, we are, um, we'll be back at 4 p.m. Pacific, uh, Monster X Radio, and uh, you can check us out on Late Night in the Midlands, too. So uh, thanks again, and we are out of here till next week. Is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.